Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Grace and Truth, a study of the book 1 Corinthians. Here's Pastor Nick. Welcome to Whitefields Community Church. So glad to have you with us this morning. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So what we like to do here at Whitefields, we like to study through books of the Bible. We go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So we've been studying through the book of 1 Corinthians for several weeks now here on Sunday mornings. And we start at the beginning and now we've worked our way up to chapter 12. And we'll be beginning in chapter 12, verse 12, where we left off last week. Well, with that, let's bow our heads and pray as we open God's word. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you, Lord, that you have given your body for us in order to make us your body. Lord, would you help us? Would you show us a vision for what you want the church to be that is truly compelling? And Lord, would you, uh, would you challenge us, encourage us, and empower us to live into this vision that you have for us as your people? And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last year early in September. So one day in early September, I woke up and I had a toothache. And it wasn't uh, that big of a deal. I've had toothaches before. So I figured, you know, it'll go away. I could still eat. Uh, It didn't really bother me. But as the day went on, this toothache just got worse and worse. And by the end of the day, it was, it was really bad. So I went to sleep that night, took some, some Advil, and I woke up the next day and it hurt even more. In fact, it hurt so bad that I couldn't even swallow. Like it hurt to swallow just, uh, and later on in the day, as the day progressed, it got worse and it even hurt to just breathe or just exist. It just, it was so much pain all the time. So I was here at the church and I called Rosemary, my wife, and I said, hey, I need to go to the dentist, which is, is not something I usually say. I usually hate going to the dentist. So I'm like, I need to go to the dentist. Like right now, I'm in so much pain, I can't even think straight. So I, I, they got me into the dentist right away. And the dentist took a, one look at me and he said, I can't do anything for you. You need to go to the endodontist, which was not what I wanted to hear because the endodontist is a special kind of dentist who does root canals. Right, so ever since I was a little kid, I've had a, a fear of root canals. In fact, one of the only reasons why I consistently brushed my teeth as a child was to prevent ever having to get a root canal because I was so afraid of it. But at this point, I was in so much pain that I was begging them, please give me a root canal, like drill a hole in my tooth, please, because this hurts so bad. And then they even told me, like, your insurance isn't going to cover it. This is going to be completely out of pocket. And I'm like, I will pay you anything. Like, don't even bother telling me how much it is. Like, I will do what it takes. Just please help me. So the next day they got me in for this emergency root canal. And guys, it did not go well, right? Like, it was like everything I was afraid of actually happened. So first of all, the anesthesia they gave me did not work, the first anesthesia. And so they start drilling, and I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm feeling everything. Like, it hurt so bad. And then they stopped. They gave me a different kind of anesthesia. That one worked, and they did the root canal, and I was pretty relieved that it was over. So I get home, and about 15 minutes after I get home, I get a call from the endodontist, and he says, hey, so I took a second look at your x-rays after you left, and I didn't go deep enough. So 
I'm going to need you to come back in next week, and we're going to have to redo this root canal. So I go back in next week, and I get a second root canal on the same tooth. And thankfully, this time it worked. But I have to tell you, that was the most pain I've ever experienced in my life. And uh, it was caused by this little tiny infection. So what the doctor told me is that what happened is like a nerve ending underneath my tooth had died, and that had led to an infection, and that infection led to an abscess, right? So the nerve ending is tiny. It's this tiny little thing. Like, like you never meet somebody and you, you like, what, it never crosses your mind. Like, I wonder how their nerve endings are doing, right? Like, hey, check out the nerve endings on that guy. Impressive. Um, you know, like, like a tooth is a pretty small part of your body, and a nerve ending under your tooth is even smaller. And yet when there was a problem with one of those little tiny nerve endings, it affected every part of my life. I couldn't think, I couldn't eat, I certainly couldn't speak or teach. And that is, that's true, right? Like every part of our bodies is interconnected. Every part has a role and a function to perform. Some parts are more visible than others. Some parts get more attention than others. But every part matters. And when one part is missing or sick or not working the way it's supposed to, the whole body suffers as a result. And the same is true when it comes to the church. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul the Apostle, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to show us that the church is like a body. And just as in a human body, right, a human body is one thing. It's a unit. It's a one thing. But it's, but it's made up of many different things. And in the same way, the church is one thing and yet it's made up of many members, and every member matters. Every member has a role to play. Every member has something to contribute, and every other member needs the other members. In a body, there is unity on the one hand, but that unity is comprised of great diversity. So there's unity and there's diversity. Now, this, is, this was a really important message for the Corinthian Christians to hear. Because rather than unity, their church was plagued by division. Now, some members considered themselves to be smarter or more spiritual or more gifted than others. And in reality, it was a matter of arrogance. It was a matter of pride. But it was having disastrous effects on the church there in Corinth. When it came to spiritual gifts, which we talked about in our study last week in the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, spiritual gifts, which are the supernatural giftings that God gives by the Holy Spirit to enable us to do his work and serve others in his name. Well, some of the Christians in Corinth, they took pride in the fact that they had certain gifts and they looked down on others who didn't have those gifts as if they were less important or, or less valuable. And Paul the Apostle here is writing to them and saying, no, no, no way. That's not how it works. The church is a body. It's like a body. And in a body, there is diversity. And that diversity is by design. It isn't that other people are not gifted or that they're less gifted. It's that God has gifted them in different ways. But every gift is needed and every gift is valuable. Furthermore, since it's God who gives the gifts, 
Nobody can really take pride in having certain gifts because you don't earn them. You don't merit them. Having a certain gift isn't a sign that you're more mature or more spiritual than other people. And the purpose of the gifts, of course, isn't even to do anything for you. It's so that you can use them to serve others. So this was an important section for the Corinthian Christians to hear. But you know what? This is also a very important message for you and I to hear today as well. Do you realize that? This is an important section for you and me to hear as well. And here's why. Because in our day, there's a huge uh, emphasis on diversity in our culture. So in our culture, there's a huge emphasis on diversity. And yet, where we tend to struggle in our culture, in our day and age, is when it comes to unity and where it comes to commitment. Unity and commitment. Our individualistic culture is really good at honoring diversity. We do it all the time, right? We say stuff like, hey, you do you. Uh, I'll do my thing. You do your thing. We're good. But what Paul says here in chapter 12 is something that we need to hear, and that's this, that to be part of the body means that we are members of the body. To be a member of the body implies responsibility. It implies commitment. It implies obligation and it implies contribution. It means that you are not just in this for yourself. It's not just about what you can get out of it personally and individually, but to be a member of the body, that means that God has a role for you to play, a contribution for you to make, and your contribution matters. So the title of today's message is Unity and Diversity in the Body of Christ. And what we're going to see in our study today, our one-sentence summary, which will be our outline for studying this passage, I'd love it if you'd write it down and take this thought with you as you go today. Here's what it is. Every Christian is a member of Christ's body, gifted by God in complementary ways to serve others and do His work in the world. We're going to take that sentence and we're going to break it down and it'll be our outline for studying this passage. So let's begin with the first part. Every Christian is a member of Christ's body. Look at what it says in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so it is with Christ. You know, there are, there are many metaphors that the Bible uses to describe what the church is. For example, the, the Church is referred to in the Bible as the household of God, right? It's a family. Also, the church is referred to as the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church is referred to as the bride of Christ. The church is also referred to as the flock of God. And of course, here we see that the church is referred to as the body of Christ. But what each of these metaphors tells us is that God is present with the church and present in the church in a special way. He has a special relationship to the church. You know, one of the things you realize as you study through the Bible is that God really likes the church. Like, he's super into it. He loves it, actually. Let me give you some examples. Jesus himself said, I will establish the church. So it's Jesus' idea to begin with. He established. Then he said, I will build the church. So he's committed, not just to establishing it and then being like, all right, good luck, guys. No, no, no. He's committed to building it. Then the book of Acts, what do we see? We see that the Holy Spirit comes upon the church. The Holy Spirit adds to the church. And then the Holy Spirit sends people from the church to go out and do what? start more churches. Then the Holy Spirit inspires letters in the New Testament who are written primarily to churches. 
In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, John, the revelator, the one who sees the vision in the revelation, he sees Jesus. And where is Jesus? He's walking amongst the lampstands, which are the churches. So where does Jesus hang out? Where is Jesus found? Amongst the churches is what Revelation tells us. And at the end of Revelation, Jesus goes full bore and he just marries the church. Like that's how much he loves it. He wants to marry it. See, apparently Jesus is really into the church. In spite of its flaws, in spite of its failures, in spite of its shortcomings, Jesus loves it, warts and all. And so think about what that means for you and me as disciples and followers of Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus means to love the things Jesus loves. And so as disciples, as followers of Jesus, we should love the church, cherish the church, identify with the church, and be the church. The New Testament word for church is the word ecclesia, ecclesia, which means assembly or gathering. And that actually tells us a lot about what the church is meant to be. You know, sometimes I hear people say, like, oh, I don't belong to a local church. I just belong to the body of Christ in general. As a Christian, I follow Jesus, but I don't belong to a local church. Well, what's important to understand is that the Bible does talk about both the, the body of Christ in the global sense and in the local sense. And yet, in the Bible, if, if you're part of the body of Christ in a global sense, the expectation is that you should also be part of a congregation in the area where you live, a local expression of Christ's body in that place where you live. The idea that you could be a Christian and not belong to a local church would have been completely foreign, completely unheard of amongst the early Christians. Like, if you would have said that to them, they would have been like, what, what are you even talking about? Like, that, that's, not, that's not how it works. I, I like how Sinclair Ferguson puts it. He says it this way. We are not saved individually and then choose to join the church as if it were some club or support group, but rather Christ died for his people and we are saved when by faith we become part of the people for whom Christ died. What he's saying is really important for us to hear. What he's saying is that being a Christian, on the one hand, yes, it is about having a personal, individual relationship with God, but that's not all it is, right? So being a Christian isn't only about having a personal relationship with God. It's also about being part of the body of Christ. So as Paul is talking to the Corinthians, on the one hand, he's saying, you guys are part of the body of Christ on a global scale, but, but he's also saying, look, your local church there in Corinth itself is also a body. It's a local manifestation of the body of Christ. And he says in verse 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So every Christian is part of Christ's body. And it says in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, it says this, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, at that point, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's talking about here when he says you were baptized in one spirit, right? You drank of one spirit. It means that no matter what background, no matter what your social class or economic tier, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The hierarchies of this world do not apply in the body of Christ. We are all equal in Christ. We're all equally sinners, and we're all equally made right with God and saved in Jesus. And yet, even though we are equal in value and equal in standing before God, 
that doesn't mean that we're all the same. So even though we're equal, that doesn't mean we're all the same in our function and in our gifting. Just as God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all three persons of the Trinity are equally God, yet they have different roles and functions that they perform. And so in the same way, for us in the body of Christ, we are equal, and yet God has given us different gifts and callings and ministries. And what Paul wants us to understand is that that is very good. That's a good thing. Rather than being a source of envy or rivalry or pride, we should understand that this is a beautiful thing for us to embrace enthusiastically. That brings us to the second part of our sentence. Every Christian is a member of Christ's body, gifted by God in complementary ways. He says in verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. You know, the fact that the word church Ecclesia in Greek means assembly or gathering. That reminds us that as members of the body, it's important for us to come together. That's a big reason why during this pandemic, you know, on the one hand, we wanted to honor the authorities, but on the other hand, we wanted to do everything that we could so that we could continue gathering as the body because that's part of what it means to be the body. The members of the body need to come together. And now in verses 15 through 26, Paul's going to tease out the uh, analogy of the church as a body. He's going to tease it out. And it kind of breaks into two parts. So verses 15 through 20, Paul is going to address those who feel excluded or unimportant because they don't have certain gifts. Maybe that's some of you. You're like, I don't know what my gift is. I don't feel particularly important. Maybe I feel a little excluded. Paul's going to address that in verses 15 through 20. Uh, Others, though, then he turns and he addresses those who were excluding others and making them feel less important. That's what he does in verses 21 through 26. So let's read. Verse 15, If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. That wouldn't make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. It kind of reminds me, of what the right eye said to the left eye. You know, he leaned over and said, hey, between you and me, something smells, right? (laughs) Sorry. I apologize. Uh, Let's continue. Uh, Ever since Jesus ascended into heaven, he has had no physical body here on earth. So Jesus has had no physical body here on earth. But here's what's amazing. Jesus has called us as his disciples, to act as his body here on earth. Think about what that means. It means that we get to be his hands and his feet in the world through which he accomplishes his work, right? It is through us that he goes into the world. It's through us that he helps and touches and and does his work. You get to be his mouthpiece through which his words are spoken for people to hear. Jesus is not here in the flesh to embrace that person who needs a hug, but he can do it through you, 
right? Jesus isn't here to encourage that discouraged person or to provide for that person who needs physical, tangible help or to welcome little children who would come to him. But you get to do those things in his name. We get to act as the body of Christ in the world. That's our calling. That's who we are. But here's the thing. You can't be a body all by yourself. You ever think about that? You can't be a body all by yourself. You're a part, but you're not the whole thing. And here's the deal. In order to be a body, you need other people, and the body of Christ needs you. Imagine if there was just a, a detached hand just running around the room, right, like crawling around the room without a body. It would be, be crazy, right? That'd be like the stuff nightmares are made of. Or, or just imagine like a pancreas chilling on the couch by himself, right? It'd be weird, and, and uh, those detached parts of the body, they wouldn't live for very long. You know why? Because they need the other parts of the body in order to survive. Any individual part, if it's detached from the body, it will soon suffer. It will wither up. Every part needs to be attached to the body in order to thrive. And the rest of the body suffers when one part doesn't show up, right? When one part is missing. Friends, every one of you are needed in the body of Christ. God has given you certain gifts, and other people need the gifts God has given you, and you need the gifts that God has given them. By God's wise design, in the body, nobody has everything, but everybody has something. Nobody has everything, but everybody has something. And this diversity is good. Your eyes can do things that your liver can't do, and your liver can do things that your eyes can't do, and both are important. Both are needed. Look at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care one for another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So the picture that's given here of a church is not that of an audience that passively receives. The picture given of the church is of a body that has a pulse, and every member is contributing to the mission. In the church, you know, just as in a body, just like in a body, there are some parts whose roles are highly visible and get lots of attention, like your nose. Everybody who looks at you, they see your nose. But nobody ever compliments you on your kidneys. You might have amazing kidneys. They're doing an awesome job, but nobody ever notices because they're out of sight, Nobody can see them. They're, they're essential, and yet they're out of sight. In the same way, some gifts and roles in the church are highly visible. They get lots of attention, but other gifts and roles in the church are behind the scenes. They don't get seen. And yet what Paul's telling us is that the behind-the-scenes gifts and roles are indispensable. In the church, just like in a body, every member matters. And look what he says about those of lesser honor. He says, we protect the weak. We show honor to the members of the body whom the world would tend to overlook or cast aside. We give them honor in the body. Because we're a body, that means this. It means that the spiritual condition of the other members should matter to you personally. 
The spiritual condition of the other members should matter to you personally because it affects you personally. In the book of Genesis, chapter 4, we read one of the most famous stories in the Bible. It's the story of how Cain murdered his brother Abel. It says that after Cain killed his brother Abel, God pursued Cain and, and tried to engage him in dialogue and conversation. So God came to him. He said, Cain, where's your brother? What happened to your brother? Where is he at? Of course, God knew. He's trying to engage Cain. And what does Cain say? He says, how should I know where my brother is? That's not my job, right? And he says, famous line, am I my brother's keeper? Now, of course, Cain is asking that question because he's insinuating that the answer is no, that he's not responsible for his brother's well-being, right? That he's, he's responsible for himself. He's not responsible for how his brother's doing. But the correct answer to that question, am I my brother's keeper? The correct answer is actually yes. Yes, you do have an obligation to your brother. No, you are not an isolated individual who only needs to look out for yourself. And friends, what Paul is saying is that in the body of Christ, you are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. You are not just an isolated individual who only needs to care about and look out for yourself. You are a member of a body. And that means that you have an obligation towards the other members in the body. And brings us to the final part of our sentence and of our study here today. And that's this. Every Christian is a member of Christ's body, gifted by God in complementary ways to do what? To serve others and do his work in the world. Verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You know, the body of Christ is made up of a bunch of disparate individuals who have been united by Jesus. You know what the body of Christ is? The body of Christ is what we could call a fellowship of difference who have been united by a higher calling in Christ. It reminds me of Jesus' disciples. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, there's a list of all 12 of Jesus' disciples. And what's interesting to me is two names in particular in that list, particularly the name Matthew, the tax collector, and another guy named Simon the Zealot, Simon the Zealot. So tax collectors were Jewish people who worked for the occupying Roman forces to collect taxes from their fellow Jews. And they were hated by the other Jews, not only because the Jews didn't like to pay taxes, they were hated because they were seen as sellouts, as traitors, because they were collecting money that then went to support the Roman occupation, which they believed was illegal, it shouldn't happen, it wasn't what even God wanted. And so tax collectors were considered sellouts and traitors and, and anti-patriotic. The zealots, on the other hand, were kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. They were a group of what we would call today kind of like far-right-wing nationalists who were willing to resort to violence in order to overthrow the government. Uh, they were famous for this one thing they would do is they would carry these hooked daggers underneath their cloaks, and a group of them would walk up to somebody in the marketplace, maybe a, someone who's colluding with the Romans, or maybe a Roman soldier. They would surround them, and right there in broad daylight, they would just stab the person to death and then flee, right? This is what they would do because that's how committed they were as nationalists to overthrowing the Roman occupation. But think about what this means. Jesus brought a guy like that into his fold to be his disciple. Jesus brought a guy like Matthew to be his disciple. These are two people which they came from complete opposite ends of society. And, and yet Jesus brings them together. 
In any other setting, like Simon the Zealot would have wanted to kill Matthew, the tax collector. But Jesus brings them together, seats them around a table. And you know what Jesus does for them? He calls them to follow him and be his disciples. In other words, he gave them a new direction, a new purpose with their lives. In Jesus, they received a new identity, and that brought them into a new community. Apart from Jesus, these men would have been enemies. But because of Jesus, these men from completely opposite ends of society, they come together, they set aside their differences for the sake of a higher calling, a bigger purpose, a greater allegiance. Not Rome, not Israel, but the kingdom of God. And that's what it means for us as individuals to be part of the body of Christ. It means that we are united despite our differences in background and opinions, despite our differences in personality or gifting. We come together and we're united by a higher calling and a greater identity, which comes from Jesus. Verse 28 says that God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Notice here, Paul puts numbers on some of these gifts. Did you notice that? It would seem that what Paul is saying is that some gifts are more valuable to the church than other gifts. And maybe you say, hang on a second. Didn't you just spend the last 20 minutes telling us that all the gifts are important, that all the gifts are needed. But now, Paul's saying that some gifts are more valuable than other gifts. What is that? Well, listen, based on the context of actually the entire book, but also specifically of chapters 12 through 14, most Bible scholars believe that the reason Paul gives this list here in the way that he does, ordering them in the order that he does, is because Paul wants to bring some correction and balance to the way the Corinthians thought about which gifts were the greatest and the most important and the most useful. Because look at what Paul says in verse 31. He says, earnestly desire the higher gifts or the greater gifts. Now we know from chapter 14 that the Corinthian Christians tended to think that speaking in tongues was the greatest of all the gifts because it was flashy and it was impressive. It was like driving a sports car, right? Like it was, it was fun and, and people noticed you. But notice, Paul says he puts speaking in tongues at the end of the list, in the end of his ordered list there in verse 28. Because in Paul's mind, as he'll express more later, speaking in tongues is actually the least of the gifts because the only gift that doesn't serve others, doesn't serve the church, it really only serves the individual who's doing it. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't have value. It just means it's the least of the gifts because it does the least for the body. On the other hand, we know from, from like 1 Corinthians and, and also 2 Corinthians that some people in the Corinthian church tended to not respect the role of apostle. So Paul puts that first in the list. Because why? The apostles didn't just serve one local congregation. They led the, the entire Christian movement. And then the prophets who speak the word of God to the people, the teachers who expound and explain the scripture, those gifts which the Corinthians tended to undervalue, Paul speaks of them as being of prime importance because they serve the most people in the body. And then he lists some other gifts, but notice he puts tongues last of all, which means that Paul's saying that helping others and administration in the church actually do more for the body of Christ than speaking in tongues 
which is the gift that the Corinthians were most enamored with. Paul's trying to give them some balance and correction in the way they think about which gifts are the greatest. Paul then, in verse 29 and 30, he asks, does everybody have these gifts, right? They're, they're rhetorical questions, which assume the answer is no. Not everybody has all the gifts, and not everybody has the same gifts. But verse 31, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Some translations say greater gifts. The greatest gift, right, the best gift is the gift that is most needed in a particular situation, a particular moment. For example, I have a lot of tools in my garage. Which of my tools is my best tool? Well, that depends on what job I need to do. A saw is the best tool for cutting wood, but it's not the best tool for waxing my car. In the same way, the greatest gifts are the ones that are needed to accomplish a particular task at hand. Some gifts are given on special occasions. Some gifts are given more constant. And so you can ask God. You can pray and ask God to give you the gifts and abilities which will best serve others and enable you to do his work. And Paul concludes this section with the end of verse 31 where he says, and I will show you still a more excellent way. That more excellent way Paul's going to show us in chapter 13 is the way of focusing not primarily on the gifts themselves, but focusing on the purpose of the gifts, which is to love others in Jesus' name. The gifts are ways we can express the love of God, right? But sometimes if we get focused on the gifts for the sake of the gifts, we can lose track of the purpose of the gifts, which is using them to love others and express his love to them. And here's what the Bible says. It says that we love because he first loved us. And this is love, it says. Not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus told his disciples on the night before he was crucified, he said, greater love has no one than this, than that someone would lay down his life for his friends. And friends, the message of the gospel is that God knows you fully. He knows every sin, every mistake, every thought you've had. And yet, rather than pushing you away, rather than retreating from you, rather than disowning you, he has chosen to love you and love you so much that he came to you to save you and redeem you, to forgive you by giving himself for you. He took the judgment for your sin so you could be saved. And the way to receive that gift, to receive that grace, that gift of forgiveness and new life, is by putting your faith and your trust firmly in Jesus Christ today as your Savior and as your Lord. But then, look what John says next. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. One of the ways we love one another is by serving each other with the gifts God gives us. So I want to challenge you today to use the gifts that God has given you, to stir them up, to use them, put them into practice, to use the gifts that God has given you, to build up others and to be part of his work in the church and in the world. Every Christian is a member of Christ's body, gifted by God in complementary ways, to serve others and do his work in the world. Would you please stand with me and let's pray.
You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.